0: I'm Courtney Smith, and I'm Elise
1: Sharp, and we are two Shakespeare nerds who decided to make a podcast about our love for Shakespeare. In this podcast, we will tackle as many dimensions to Shakespeare's plays as we can by looking at the text, examining the historical context in which it was written, and how the text is viewed through modern lenses of feminism, racism, classism, colonialism, nationalism, ableism, all of the isms.
0: We will discuss how his plays shaped both the past and present
1: and, as actors, how his plays can be responsibly performed today. All while trying our best to approach his works without giving in to bardolatry. So, Shakespeare anyone?
0: Hi listeners, it's Courtney here. If you are listening to this episode after 2023, You might be wondering, who is this Corey Lee Smith host? When we started this podcast, I went by that stage name, Corey. I've chosen to leave my stage name and, as you know, I now go by Courtney. But before you enjoy past Elise and past Courtney's episodes in our back catalog, I wanted to clarify the name switch. Now that I've said that straight, I invite you to sit back, relax, and enjoy the episode. Hello, listeners. This is Courtney. Elise and I are so thrilled to continue bringing episodes of Shakespeare Anyone to listeners like you for free. We do this out of our love for Shakespeare, theater making, scholarship, and decentering dead white men. We put a lot of hard work into research, recording, editing, and generally producing a podcast. With that said, I'm here to remind you all that we have a Patreon page if you want to support our current work and our future goals that we believe patreon will help us achieve we've created a variety of support levels and continue to create exclusive bonus content for our patrons on a monthly basis our bonus content so far includes shakespeare stuff we loved this month posts where we share the shakespeare related products we are obsessing over not only that but we already launched bonus episodes One is an extension on our conversation with Dr. Simone Chess about John Lilly's Galatea and early modern trans studies. And the second is a conversation with special guest Stephanie from Protest Too Much podcast, in which we review Joel Cohen's Macbeth starring Denzel Washington and Frances McDormand. Elise and I also discuss Shakespeare-adjacent content, like movies, TV shows, books, to name a few, and share those conversations exclusively to Patreon. These are incredible conversations you can unlock as a patron. We also have plans for additional bonus episodes, including more special guests, more film reviews, and even an Ask Us Anything. Distinguished patrons even receive exclusive voting power and snail mail. If you would like to join us and support the production of this podcast, or just check out the Shakespeare-themed names we've given the support levels, head to patreon.com slash shakespeareanyone. The link will also be in our episode descriptions. And if you like what you hear, Elise and I would greatly appreciate it if you could rate, review, and follow us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Your review might even make it on an episode. When you're done, be sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter, and then tell a friend. Word of mouth is our best form of advertisement. Thank you for listening, and all of the support you give us and the podcast. Now, on to the episode. Hi Corey hi Elise how's it going today uh it's going pretty well how are you I'm very excited because this is our final episode in our Macbeth series can you believe we're here I can't just I can't like, just like it seems like just a week ago we were like hey let's do a podcast and let's talk about Macbeth oh my gosh how are we going to do this
1: yeah and now it's like oh we're here yeah but uh, yeah I'm excited Today, how how do we end talking about mm-hmm. the plays? And what we've decided to do for Macbeth, what we're going to do is talk about how this play has influenced other art, specifically plays and film and mm-hmm. TV in the modern era and the ripple effect that this script continues to have in our world. So we're specifically looking at some... Su- adaptations.
0: Because this play has been around for 400 plus years, we won't get to talking about everything. But we are looking at specifically notable or interesting adaptations. And interesting is a good word to kind of summarize all of it.
1: Everything from productions where they just maybe changed the setting to other times and places to changing Everything so much that really only the characters and the plot are loosely based on Shakespeare's play. Mm-hmm. Uh we're gonna mention some great, outstanding, notable productions
2: mm-hmm.
1: and some bizarre productions mm-hmm. and a few in between. Yeah. No judgment.
0: No judgment because art is subjective, so but, l-
1: but there's some judgment. things that
0: once you yeah, once you study well, the play, I feel like there's a kind of ability to go did that choice have to be made you know
1: judging more the effectiveness of the choices not the artistic merit of them I guess is a good way to put it
0: yes so I want to start by I was just kind of looking around YouTube because I will admit I have not had the chance to watch every adaptation of Macbeth because there are so many
1: how could you how How could could you you? even have the time (laughs)
0: but what i did find was i found some compare and contrast youtube videos from some notable intros it was specifically the first scene act 1 scene 1 so i kind of want to just talk about some of these different choices that were made and uh that kind of encapsulates i think how we're going to be having this conversation so the first the first video that i watched was from the roman polanski 1971 macbeth and what I do know about Roman Polanski's Macbeth is whether or not you like him or not. For the reasons, I do know that he made this film two years after the Manson family murdered his wife and unborn child and everyone else at the uh, what was the name of the house?
1: Uh, it's the La Bianca murders. Yeah, Cielo Drive. It's
0: Cielo. Thank you. Yes, That's the
1: Tate La Bianca murders. The Tate La now Bianca we're a murder murders podcast. <laughs>
0: Shakespeare and True Crime. Boo <gasps> boo! <Pew, pew. laughs> and um this adaptation with the first scene, it started with three witches, two very old, two of them with prosthetic features on their face, and one with a young a young witch, and they are on a beach and they are burying ingredients that we are gonna see later on in the play, like a hand and also some blood, and they're you know burying some items into the uh sand, and then they say, you know, double double toil and trouble. And that's one adaptation where it looks Stylistically very close to maybe medieval Scotland. Um, So that was one choice. Another one was BBC 2005 Macbeth. Directed by Mark Brausel. And one of the writers is Peter Moffat. It also has James McAvoy. And uh, this version very much steered from the text. And it opens um, with a landfill. The camera does a close-up in on a garbage truck and there are three men who are the witches sitting in a garbage truck eating sandwiches and part of the dialogue is Shakespeare's text. The other part is additional lines that are in contemporary vernacular and like they're talking about like their sandwiches that they're eating, like they talk about haggis and so it's far from the actual original text. So that's another version. There also is a version by Richard Wright, the director Richard Wright from 2006. And in this opening, Act 1, Scene 1, the three witches are angry, hissing schoolgirl witches who are running around destroying property in a cemetery. And yeah, what a face. And then the, uh, the 2010 version is the Rupert Gould starring Patrick Stewart as Macbeth. And in this adaptation, it takes place in a military medical hospital possibly world war one or world war two um i couldn't really tell from the costuming and it starts in a very tumultuous scene you've got some additional characters like soldiers who have some lines are telling people to move out of the way because things are shaking i don't know if it's supposed to be like a bombing because it is england probably during world war ii and there are three nurses looking over a body that's kind of jolting Everyone else leaves, all the military members, like the soldiers and the lieutenants, leave, and we're left with these three nurses who are the witches. And so this body that's on a gurney starts to convulse, and one of the witches stabs him with a tranquilizer and he calms down. They do their speech, and then towards the end of the speech, one of the nurses, one of the witches, reaches into the chest, pulls out the heart, and then they walk down the hallway together, saying the rest of their dialogue. And that's the opening for that 2010 version. The last version that was in this video was the 2015 version that is directed by Justin Kurzel, And this version included your favorite thing in the whole wide world, Elise. It included a child funeral. So it starts with a child funeral. Lady Macbeth and Macbeth are accompanied by other thanes and there's a child that is being buried and then it pans off to the distance and you see three women and it looks like it's very medieval style costuming and there are three witches who are standing there observing the child funeral and then they start their dialogue.
1: Yeah. I uh, saw that one in theaters. You all know how much I love a child funeral at the top of that so it's, hmm. it's really in a good mood that I paid <laughs> Like $15 to the art house theater to sit and watch.
0: Yeah. Um, Not my cup of tea. No, no. But these five versions that were all put together kind of encapsulates that directors and writers and costumers, scenic designers will take artistic liberties with Shakespeare. Sometimes they make sense. Like I would say probably Roman Polanski's version kind of makes some sense based on the text. But then you have Kersel's version that has a child funeral that they added, a scene they added before yeah. we get to
1: Shakespeare's he also, text. He takes a lot of liberties. Takes a <laughs> I lot have of liberties. feelings
2: <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> with that version. It's very pretty. Two great actors in the lead roles. Some great ensemble cast. A seeming lack of understanding of uh, some key stuff in the text.
0: And that's the thing, too, is while we're discussing these adaptations... As an actor and a person who has a lot of actor friends, a lot of the time what the actors do are not because of actor decisions. They're because they're told to do that. So someone can have a really brilliant performance in an adaptation, but still the entire adaptation will miss the mark. So, yeah. yeah. And I do want to mention that with all five of these, none of them included Beards for the Witches. None of them were androgynous. You have four versions with female witches who are very female presenting and you have one where it's three men so
1: did the men the men didn't even have beards
0: no no maybe two of them had some scruff and one of them was very clean shaven but
1: my kingdom for some bearded witches
0: i know i know i don't think i would have known how much i craved bearded witches until we did this podcast someone please give us some bearded witches So, yeah, we're just hitting the tip of the iceberg with these introductions. We have a lot to get into.
1: Yeah, let's go a little bit deeper. There is one production that you have mentioned before. Mm -hmm. We've talked a little bit about an adaptation that I saw that I did not enjoy Mm -hmm. just now. But I know there is one that it does not sit easy in your soul that this happened. So would you like to kick off our conversation about adaptations? I I will.
0: With one that just really misses the mark, really misses the mark. And I will admit, I have not seen the full play, but I have seen the trailer and I have seen clips. And this version is 2006 Macbeth. It is directed by Gregory Wright. It is written by Victoria Hill, who played Lady Macbeth, and Gregory Wright, the director. It got a 49% on Rotten Tomatoes and a 4.6 out of 10 on IMDb. I have two contrasting reviews that I found. One of them is a New York Times Critics Choice by Matt Zoller Seitz. He said, quote, But few recent efforts can match the Australian writer and director Jeffrey Wright's brutal and thrilling new version, which envisions the thane of Cawdor as a long-haired, drug-addled gangster and his poisoned realm as a decadent MTV dreamscape of nymphette witches, smoky nightclubs, and point-blank slow-motion gun battles. And um, first of all, I feel like this entire review is admitting that the the critic doesn't understand Macbeth in itself, and it's problematic because it says nymphette witches. That's a whole other thing. But the general consensus is um, more similar to this other review I found, where the title of this article is, Fair is Foul and Foul is Fair, but Jeffrey writes Macbeth is just foul. And this article writes that the film's biggest sin the one that is reflective of all others, is that it ultimately misses the point of its own narrative entirely. And that is the point of view that I'm going to start diving into. As we look at adaptations and how we especially deal with female characters in these plays, many Shakespeare's plays expose what Hilary Fogarty refers to as, quote a historic inability to comprehend the complexity of sex and gender in late 16th and early 17th century England. And the article that I was reading, argues that Wright's current Macbeth offers a disturbing representation of a contemporary society no less inimical to women. The film is a discourse linking femininity, sexuality, and evil, which exposes our persistent anxieties surrounding the alleged dangerous sexual power of women. So, I'm going to share some ways in which this 2006 film, rather than learning from the ways in which we can represent women in art links itself more closely to the sexist roots of how women are portrayed of Shakespeare's time. The biggest way that this adaptation does that is with the overt sexualization of the three witches. The three witches are represented as seductive schoolgirls. This adolescent schoolgirl has decidedly a misogynistic flavor and serves to perpetuate the very ideologies under question. In attributing women with a conscious, recusant sexuality that tempts men towards chaos and calamity, Wright's Macbeth perpetuates what Val Plumwood refers to as the culture of the master, the ideology that legitimizes all forms of oppression. So, what we see in this film is that the three schoolgirl witches are seen as temptresses, who rather than coming into the scene, into the story, into Macbeth's life, presenting prophecy and giving him information that could really like dig into his raw ambition and test him and test his character. It's being presented more as a sexualized seduction where Macbeth, rather than able to make his own decisions, he is tempted by an evil sexualized femininity that basically persuades him into the decisions rather than actually making them off of his own raw ambitions. And linked this representation of uh, the evil of sexuality and the evil of femininity to this genealogy of evil from early modern era. And that evil is what popularly allowed the witch hunts to exist. It's deeply misogynistic campaigns that believes in the demonization of female sexuality and aimed to bring brutal, punitive, and regulative machinery to bear directly on women. And by taking these three schoolgirls and placing them as sexual figures who are able to steer Macbeth towards evil, female sexuality is evil in and of itself because if you let female sexuality exist, then you're going to steer someone towards evil and you have to squash that temptation for the man. Ew. I hate it. I hate it too. Yeah. That's...
1: Yes. Uh, I just watched... Alan versus Pharaoh, and so now I'm just like, any, like, grown adult man who is like, mm, like, women are seductive, but especially under Mm 18-year-olds?
2: (laughs) Mm-hmm.
1: Yep. No. What does it say about a person where, like, your concept of, like, a man would be fine if it wasn't for these temptresses? Mm Mm-hmm. And not only these temptresses, but, like, these child temptresses. Mm Mm-hmm. Because... I don't understand. I don't either. I don't. Like, and that's and
0: that's the thing is that is a choice.
1: How is your worldview such that like that is a justifiable decision for you? Yeah,
0: these schoolgirl witches, they all um, they all look very much the same. They have the pleated skirt, they have the jacket, they have red hair and the little like hats, little beret hats. Um, you know, they're wearing the traditional schoolgirl outfit, and then on top of that, you have this image of the innocent schoolgirl with the behavior of rebellious, evil. And like the thing too is the witches in Macbeth know what they're doing. Mm
1: -hmm. You know what I
0: mean? Like the witches, they know that they are going to equivocate. They know that they're going to set this person's world into motion. They know that they're going to attempt. They
1: choose Macbeth.
0: They choose Macbeth.
1: Purposefully. And, And then later get in trouble for it.
0: Yeah. So when they see him on the heath, they know that what they're doing is they're coming in to basically shake up his world and maybe be part of his downfall. But like, Mm -hmm. they are choosing to do this as, you know, non-binary, who knows the age of them, you know, witches. And instead, Gregory Wright's version takes these visually underage witches and makes them fully knowledgeable of the harm they're going to do. And not only that, but they use sexualization in order to seduce and tempt Macbeth. And it's like that in and of itself is totally perpetuating the... She knew what a she was Or Madonna Complex. Doing. Yeah.
1: Slut shaming. Like, mm-hmm. there's so much misogyny wrapped up in this idea of you hit it earlier with it is making female sexuality evil and the downfall of man. Which, <laughs> if that's your point, maybe do it in a way that, like, is more nuanced. I don't know. I don't Rather know. Than putting them in or a may- squirrel yeah. uniform.
0: Or maybe if you wanted to hit that on the head, like if that's how you wanted to be, maybe make that lady Macbeth's thing, but don't put it on the witches. Here's the yeah. thing too, oh, you're gonna love this, you're gonna love this. <laughs> the adaptation for one of the scenes where I think it's supposed to be the uh second visitation with the mm-hmm. um with the line of Banquo's yeah,
1: yeah children,
0: yeah. the apparitions, the apparition scene it's a it's a dance floor orgy where. The uh the witches and Macbeth consummate this relationship between the supernatural and him, and it's in a nightclub called the Cador, and it's, <laughs> yeah, yeah, and so so not only do you have them represented as schoolgirls who are underage and they're overly sexual, there's also this decision to make them animal like, so like in the opening scene. There's a lot of animal-like hissing and there's a lot of crawling of the witches. They're frequently naked. The naked witches engage in biting, scratching, screeching, and one of them leaps onto Macbeth's back during this orgy scene. So, so not you have- only do you
1: have... So, pause, pause. So not only <laughs> okay. do you have hyper-sexualized, underage characters, that's what mm-hmm. you are saying these witches are. And not you, Corey, but, but like you, Mr. Director.
0: Mr. Yes. <laughs>
1: But you're also going to have your full ass grown man engage in intercourse with underage individuals. Mm hmm. Yes. And it's somehow their fault?
0: Yes. And it's animalistic. Which goes into this domination and subjugation derivative of the conceptual strength from casting sexual, racial, and ethnic differences as close to the animal and the body, both construed as spheres of inferiority. Yeah,
1: by making them animalistic, it makes them less than human Mm -hmm. as well. So, like, a man can do anything to them because Mm -hmm. he is smarter, better, top of the pyramid. That's so... Yeah, yeah. I hate it here.
0: And really, I know. And the challenge really becomes Macbeth has to steer away from and maybe control them, but he doesn't because he's not strong enough. But this depiction, this animal-like witch, where in the text do we get... I I feel like if Shakespeare wanted to make them animal-like, he would have put language in there that tells you that they're like animals. Yeah.
1: Caliban is described as less than human. Mm Mm-hmm. We have characters who say that we don't have that here. I mean, Mm -hmm. they act weird, but they don't act like animals. They act like humans who Macbeth and Banquo cannot place in a binary. That's
0: it. That's it. That's all it is. So that's, (laughs) yeah. My thinking at this point is like, where does Macbeth's internal dilemma go? Because the witch's carnal evil has taken over him the representation and decision to turn the witches' prophecies into a bewitching is super sexist,
1: and it takes away the question of can you control fate, which is central to Macbeth's character in a way. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. So, though that's what Wright decided to do um, with the witches, that's a decision. That's yeah. that? Oh, mm-hmm. Okay. Um, I um, after. Oh, I, there's there's stuff about Lady Macbeth as well. No. So, yeah. <laughs> All
1: right. <laughs> uh, uh.
0: And um, he also made a bold move with Lady Macbeth. And this article noted that like more recent Shakespeare criticism has started to move away from reading Lady Macbeth as a force responsible for her husband's evil doings. And like focuses on patrilineal systems that yeah. force her into the gender roles, which you talked about. So that's kind of where the study has gone more recently. Wright decides to just pivot right on back, right on back to, you know, blaming Lady Macbeth, just total shaming her. And Wright's representation of Lady Macbeth includes a costume design that notably has revealing garments and her hair and makeup connect her in a lot of ways to the witches. They visually look very the same. So this choice might link the evil of the witches with Lady Macbeth. But in the play they're in no way really connected um and then they also play into the relationship of the two entities the witches and lady macbeth being connected by having all of these underlying like lady macbeth can be seen lighting multi-tiered candelabras and those resemble the ones lining the wall when macbeth and the witches are in their little orgy there are shots that are accompanied by deep purring thunder which sounds like the thunder that accompanied the witches in the cemetery so in a lot of ways visually this adaptation chose to link lady macbeth and the witches
1: so all women all women are the downfall of men is what Mm -hmm,
0: is what that's implying i'm sorry but
1: that's boring as (laughs) what a boring choice ultimately like yeah been done i'm sorry
0: (laughs) yeah i know i'm sorry
1: like my gender has been blamed for the downfall of society since like i don't know the beginning of the bible Mm -hmm. so
0: you could have made any decision instead not
1: very inventive i think is what i'm gonna give this adaptation no i agree
0: (laughs) and um this film emphasizes the line you will put this night's great business into my dispatch which implicates her as the mobilizing force behind her husband's misdeeds and during the smear the sleeping groom with blood scene they include that. They include her going in to smear the blood. And they give her unflinching conviction and a blatant lack of remorse by adding that scene. They also exploit her sexuality because one decision that they decided to make was to have Lady Macbeth be a character who withholds sexual intimacy from her husband until he kills Duncan.
1: I'm not surprised anymore, to be honest. No. I'm not surprised no. that's the decision they went with because... How could a man who's being, you know, sexually tempted by three underaged femme schoolgirls and having sex withheld from his primary partner,
2: mm-hmm. what else could he really do what but, like, else, like,
1: be totally manipulated by them? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Because he's not, he's not a person with his own agency. Yeah.
0: It's totally flipping around and putting all of the blame on any contact he has with female energy. Yeah. Yeah. And so Lady Macbeth withholds sexual contact, and they included a scene where Duncan is at the house. They've turned their country home into a house of debauchery with like slow, seductive music, a lot of cross cutting between the couples dancing, suggestive dancing, and a lot of wine and low lighting. And Lady Macbeth. Uh, Slow dances close with Duncan and makes sultry eye contact with him and then will glance towards Macbeth as she's, like, gauging his reaction to make him jealous. And that's not anywhere in the text, you know? Like, they are equal partners,
1: so... Duncan looks like her father. That's what's in the text.
0: Yeah, yeah. Now
1: you're adding, like, incest vibes. Oh,
0: my God. Yeah, so you've totally shattered this, like marriage that's actually like very equal in status and you've turned it into she is above him by withholding mm-hmm. sexual intimacy and then she's also like making him jealous with someone that reminds her of her dad. Why?
1: Was Pornhub down one day and so you just decided to write your own because mm-hmm. that's that's mm-hmm. what I'm getting from.
0: This kind of power dynamic shifts and lady Macbeth starts to give license for her husband to touch her only after the murder of duncan and it appears that a lack of affection a desire for physical sexual uh, response from his wife spurs on his violent action which is so problematic because he knows that violent action equates intimacy from his wife that's not yeah (laughs) you're just like okay let's just be done with this
1: i don't mean to be i'm just like No,
0: no, no. It's frustrating. It's like another thing, another thing, another thing. That's why I wanted to talk about this because when we talk about adapting, it's infuriating and the social implications, especially like the more you dig your heels into these very sexist, very old fashioned blaming of women for the downfall of man. It would have been 2006 Mm -hmm. when this happened. We're still here. We're still going to blame women for the downfall of a man. And, um, and one thing that is incredibly frustrating is that Wright, the director, he suggests that this film is actually a love story. He, call, he calls this a love story. He says, quote, Yes, it's described as a tragedy, which it is. Any man with a good soul going down is a tragedy. But essentially, it's got a nice spin on it because all he wants is love from his wife. That's, that's the opinion of the person in charge of making this film. So I don't know if you have any thoughts, Elise. No one can see your face, <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, except for me. I, I am just like, it hurts. <laughs> yeah, I can see yeah. why it has been so upsetting to you to just see the trailer and see yeah. this nonsense. This is exactly why we've been harping on why it's important to understand when we're doing Shakespeare now. Why? Why are we doing it? And what does it have to say now to our world? And Mm -hmm. when we adapt it, whether that's just through costumes and setting, if we're sending it during a time that exists, you know, not like sci-fi in the future, right? Mm -hmm. What are the implications? And thinking through the changes and the implications, because this production has so much potential for... No, it doesn't have potential. It is harmful.
0: Yes. Yes.
1: It's harmful. It's harmful. And in in some ways, it is just proof of what we've been saying on this podcast over and over of just the reason why it's important to study all the different things and to think about Shakespeare through different lenses is to think about the potential for harm.
0: Right. Because if what you're saying is Shakespeare is timeless, that doesn't mean – to me, that doesn't mean that it doesn't have to be done within the context of the time you live in. Yeah. Like, the words can be timeless – but why would you take a timeless text and force it back into the time that it was being made? When we know because we had suffragist movements, we know because we have new laws about, you know, women's rights, we know all of this. Yeah. Why it... would why would you why would you not analyze how you can take that timeless text and make sure it's healthy healthily My... living? Yeah.
1: My only answer to you is these are held beliefs of the creator. Yeah. When you are creating art, you are putting your view of the world or your view of events out.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Art doesn't exist into, in a vacuum. In va- yeah. Which is why, you know, we also talk about the historical context that these plays were created in. So for somebody to make this version in 2006, it says to me that whether consciously or subconsciously, that is how a creator sees the world yes because that's why you make those choices
0: yes and we have a quote yeah by the how, creator
1: that's how this creator sees love
0: love and tragedy I
1: wish a good therapist for him
0: i that's agree the best i can say now that we have this internalized screaming now externalized screaming <laughs> it's only fitting to end this section of the podcast and discuss lady Macbeth's death no right oh god so In Wright's film, Lady Macbeth's antic disposition connects her to the animal-like nature of the witches. So as the doctor and the waiting gentlewoman attempt to subdue her in her bedroom chamber, Lady Macbeth is found almost naked, screaming, panting, and writhing uncontrollably. The medical treatment in this adaptation is a tranquilizer, a procedure befitting of a wild beast. Her behavior in this scene is also reminiscent of a woman in the later stages of labor, a link is suggested between her childless state and her derangement so that's her death and when
1: just keeps the worse.
0: yeah and when the actor playing macbeth and again i don't fault the actors but when the actor playing macbeth is saying the tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow speech uh, i guess he is in the same room as his wife and he is donning cool sunglasses, a glass of scotch, and he has a drunken, cocky swagger, and he revels in the unrestricted access to his wife's body because while he is talking of the sorrow in his wife's heart, he ravishes her left breast as she lies limp and defenseless. In Lady Macbeth's last moments in this film, her husband is groping her, and her she's like a dead
1: body. He is assaulting a dead body.
2: Mm Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Susan Blaha critiques this tendency in Shakespeare text to depict an aestheticized female corpse as the ultimate signifier of a woman's sexual desire, which is basically what this decision is, is rather than her and Macbeth's total departure from each other, seen as a tragedy where she's unable to cope with, you know, the choices she made and the distance that's made between her and her husband and a tragedy... This beautiful death brings her atonement. Uh, we see her finally engaging in appropriate female or a feminine sexuality, one that is passive. That's the implication just, that...
1: Yeah, just lie there and let a man... A man can do whatever he wants to a female body. Mm-hmm. Because women don't have agency.
0: Right. So the evil woman is an ominous threat and... Like the inquisitors and judges of the 15th to the 17th centuries who made the witch hunts possible, Wright's film condemns the evil woman and provides the reason she was such an ominous threat, the reason she was to be put to the question, the reason she must die. Yeah. So.
1: Oh. That. Uh, that that's, on that happy note.
0: Yeah, so that's that's a choice that has serious yeah. social implications. And
1: again, it's without care In a way, saying, like, I know better than the playwright what the playwright meant.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: When you don't pay attention to the words, let me make this script better. And Mm -hmm. as I was saying earlier, you know, art isn't created in a vacuum. It's a response. Mm -hmm. It is informed by the world around us and our view on those things. And uh, to step away from that production, I'm going to talk a little bit about how... Shakespeare's Macbeth has been adapted over the past 130 Mm years-ish to respond to politics in our world. So it's a bit of a, maybe a palate cleanser. Um, I need one. (laughs) And uh, this is where we get to see some extreme adaptations, where we get that very loosely based on... The characters and the plot of Macbeth versus let's just put some different costumes in a different time and place setting on this. Mm -hmm. And we'll even get a sort of, if Macbeth is like the parent play and these broader adaptations or responses or plays inspired by Macbeth are the children, we'll also get like a grandchild play that is an adaptation of an adaptation. Cool. And I'm going to go through them kind of chronologically. Great. Yeah. Um, So first off, in 1896, we get Ubu Roy, which is written by Alfred Jari in French, and Mm. it was a satire that savagely attacked polite society and was basically uh, making fun of the French, this is a French play.
0: Would it be like the Restoration Periods theater? Uh, It's
1: a little bit later than Restoration. Okay call out though uh yeah it, this is after <laughs> this is after ibsen so we have more natural acting i see this is almost turn of the century um we're even after like oscar wilde
0: yeah, we are yeah
1: and also important to note that this was done with marionettes originally so ah. this is originally a, a puppet piece that okay had contemporary audiences booing and then rioting oh. after the show, they hated it what? so much because it's very foul. Okay. It literally starts off with the French word merde. I can't. Mm-hmm. I can't do the ch. Mm-hmm. Merde. Merde. Mm-hmm. So sorry to anybody who speaks French. Uh, <laughs> merde. merde? Uh, yeah. Which for us English speakers is the S word. Ah. Yes. Okay. Uh <laughs> The original production only ran for two performances. People were so angry that this very childish, sophomoric humor was placed up on the stage. And the way that it's related to Macbeth is that it centers on the rise of a murderer to the throne. And he has his wife alongside him. And they are known as Ubu, or Pa Ubu, and Ma Ubu. And they're basically like pure, just like instinct like bodily functions happening (sighs) bodily noises happening on stage uh lots of cursing okay and toilet humor (laughs) um literally pa ubu who is the Macbeth character carries a toilet brush as a scepter
0: wow Um, that's
1: (laughs) yeah so this was literally just this idea that like art has to be highbrow is Mm -hmm. what it's reacting to it's going no it doesn't and i'm gonna make a play that says High-class people poop, too. Everybody yeah. poops, is essential. Everyone, everyone poops. <laughs> everyone poops. And a contemporary review by Arthur Simons said, The play is the first symbolist farce. It has the crudity of the schoolboy or a savage. What is, after all, most remarkable about it is the insolence with which a young writer mocks at civilization itself, sweeping all art, along with humanity, into the same inglorious slop pail. In mm-hmm. our search for sensation, we have exhausted sensation. A literary sans culotte has shrieked for hours that unspeakable word of the gutter, which was the refrain. Again, merde at the time couldn't be printed in newspapers. So they had okay. to euphemistically describe what was happening. Got it. So we have that.
0: Oh, and the playwright. Was the playwright, like, well-educated and taking a piss at all the stuff that he or she, probably he, studied? Or was this somebody of a lower class, like, taking note and making art?
1: No, not exactly. He didn't, like, go to secondary school. He was the son of a salesman. Mm-hmm. I think what we would describe today as a middle-class upbringing. Mm-hmm. He just fell in with the...
0: The art crowd?
1: The art crowd of the late 1800s, France, France. I mean, and, it doesn't matter either way. Yeah. I mean,
0: remember, Shakespeare is the son of a glove maker. Exactly. Yeah.
1: That's Alfred Jari. Uh, in 1965, we get McBird, <laughs> which was written by Barbara Garson. She wrote it originally as a 15-minute anti-Vietnam War sketch when she was mm. a graduate student at UC Berkeley. It was then later developed into a full-length play. Mm -hmm. It superimposes the Kennedy assassination onto the plot of Macbeth with Uh. Lyndon B. Johnson and Lady Bird Johnson in the title character roles. Uh Garson later said that she was not seriously accusing Johnson of murdering Kennedy. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Go on the record. (laughs) It's again, political satire using the plot of Macbeth to critique the Vietnam War Mm -hmm. and it enjoyed an extended run in L.A. after a run in New York and launched the careers of Stacy Keach and Golden Girls' Rue McClanahan. It was ah. also Cleavon Little's Broadway debut. And uh, in that production, the witches are like students and leftists and working against uh, Lyndon B. Johnson. Right. Then in 1973 we get an anti-political theater piece. Mm. So a reaction to all this political theater that's happening. Oh, yeah, because in the
0: 60s and 70s, there was just a huge... For those of you who aren't theater practitioners, the 1960s and 1970s was a huge wave of political theater being developed.
1: Mm -hmm. And in response to that, we get the theater of the absurd, which is according to the Encyclopedia Britannica. Uh, Again, for anybody who's not a theater scholar... These are dramatic works of certain European and American dramatists in the 1950s and early 60s and into the 70s mm-hmm. who share a pessimistic vision of humanity struggling vainly to find a purpose and to control its fate. Humankind in this view is left feeling hopeless, bewildered and anxious. It's also coming out of World War II mm-hmm. and having that sort of the lost generation.
0: Yeah. And the disaster, the total destruction of cities, of lives. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, think Waiting for Godot, if you're familiar. Edward exactly. Albee, yeah.
1: Out of this movement, there is a adaptation of Macbeth by Eugene Ionesco.
0: I, I uh, love him.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and it's called Macbeth, uh-huh. with two T's at the end instead of an H, to make sure that it is different. And Okay. Uh, it was first performed in 1973. Ionesco wrote that Macbeth was a pamphlet against politics and even against political action. Because absurdists were antipathic to political theater. They did not care for it. Mm. There's a lot of repetition of lines, which is common in theater of the absurd because it's commenting on just kind of like, nothing ever changes, nothing ever happens.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: We as individual humans, we are not extraordinary. Yeah, if
0: if you want a good example of this, The Bald Soprano and Ionesco play is a great mm-hmm. example of that where like, I don't want to go too far off, but, like, the main characters, Mr. and Mrs. Smith, they're having a conversation, and then they repeat their conversation and, like, say the opposite and contradict themselves all the time, yeah.
1: Yeah. Macbeth is a darkly comic play as well, and it's essentially what Ionesco caught on to and wanted to play up in this version of Macbeth, this retelling. The idea of the cycle of violence is just going to continue, so... Mm. The story of a noble prince overthrowing a king and becoming a despot who will, in turn, be overthrown by a noble prince. Mm. That is just going to keep on going incessantly. And that's the point that Macbeth tries to make. Mm -hmm. Jumping forward to the 1990s, we get the grandchild adaptation, which is an adaptation of Ubu Roy, It's called Ubu Roy and the Truth Commission. It's by Jane Taylor and the Handspring Puppet Theater out of South Africa. And this uses the play of Ubu Roy, which is framed upon the play of Macbeth, to Mm -hmm. explore the theater that was the political act of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, which in South Africa, after apartheid, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission was established in 1995. It was headed up by Archbishop Desmond Tutu. And it sought to investigate human rights abuses committed under apartheid, mm. provide support to those seeking reparation for those abuses, and allow for applications for amnesty for, quote, any criminal act or omission committed for political purposes between 1960 and 1994. It sought not punishment, but reconciliation through bringing truths to light and it traveled from town to town, village to village, inviting witness testimony about the abuses people suffered or saw others suffer at the hands of the state during apartheid. Controversially, it also invited those who committed atrocities to tell their stories and confess to their role in crimes in order to both fill in historical record and allow the confessor to apply for amnesty. Mm. The director of Ubu Roy and the Truth Commission, William Kentridge, noted in his director's note, that this was the, quote, central irony of the commission. As people give more and more evidence of the things they have done, they get closer and closer to amnesty, and it gets more and more intolerable that these people should be given amnesty. Mm. So this play has a cast of two actors, Ubu and Ma Ubu. So are Macbeths, again.
2: Uh-huh.
1: And then their henchmen are played by puppets. So again, taking that idea from Alfred Jari's marionettes, and now they are puppets. Okay. Ubu is essentially the leader of a police state in this play, and then the henchman puppets enact atrocities for him on other puppets who are humanoid. So he has henchman animal puppets, and then humanoid puppets are essentially witnesses who testified to the Truth and Reconciliation Committee. Okay. Ubu and Ma Ubu never share the stage with them. However, they often like consume what the witnesses make. So for example with these puppets there's Nile the crocodile exists as both Ma Ubu's handbag and Pa Ubu's cover-up man the puppet body is attached to a canvas bag where Nile shreds the evidence of Pa Ubu's crimes mm. There's a three-headed dog named Brutus who represents the politicians the military and the thugs who enforced apartheid and that is three heads supported by a suitcase where Ubu can later plant evidence this play ends on not a happy note because basically the henchmen are getting arrested and in trouble and Ma Ubu and Pa Ubu just leave. Racism doesn't leave, essentially. Mm-hmm. And then there are the witness puppets who reenact accounts of witnesses and uh, having them be puppets helps mediate the horror of those stories.
0: Right. This version, similarly to its parent, does not use the text of Macbeth. It no. uses the Okay. The plot. The plot. Yeah. Okay.
1: The plot of a power-hungry individual and his wife. Ubu-Roy is closer to Macbeth, but then this is an interesting, like, grandchild.
0: How? Um, yeah, it's inspired by something inspired by Macbeth, and it's
1: yeah, the, and the kind side, of ripple. The of- idea of a tyrannical ruler who will do anything, no scruples, and in this version kind of gets away and moves to somewhere We don't know, but in his mind, he will be able to continue doing what he's
0: Doing with no...
1: I think what this production tries to say is, again, going back to what the Truth Commission was, Mm -hmm. just because we have aired all of these grievances, it doesn't mean that racism went anywhere. The fuel of apartheid and the cause of apartheid didn't get solved.
0: It's just that particular branding of it.
1: We just... We made people feel better about what happened to them and what they did.
0: To clarify, the character Ma and Pa Ubu are white actors. Yes, I. That's exactly what I thought. But just in case anyone's not familiar with apartheid,
1: yeah, apartheid is a period in uh, South African history where the white minority of the country exerted overwhelming amount of power, and the black majority weren't able to vote. They had no political power. They were very much second or even third class citizens in their own country. And there were also atrocities committed to them.
0: Yes. Wow. I love that you brought that one up specifically because I think it's important to take what you want from it and add to however, you know, because Shakespeare was trying to make a message against regicide, you know, he's against regicide and against tyrannicide. And that was the point of Macbeth. Like we don't have kings. And he's
1: and he adapted the story from Hollinshed, right? Yes. Into his play. And so right. yeah, just because it's not Shakespeare's words, this is that ripple effect continuing to mm-hmm. spread out throughout our Western theater.
0: Right. Because he has a he has a story that resonates with a lot of people, but we don't live in a society with a monarch. But we do live in a society where you can have an oppressive government.
1: Yes. And it's great that you mentioned that because that kind (laughs) of leads in really well to a oppressive or duplicitous government. The next play that I want to talk about, uh, Equivocation by Bill Cain, which was originally produced at Oregon Shakespeare Festival in 2009. I would say it is not based on the text of Macbeth. It's based on the circumstances. It is a historical fiction about the writing of Macbeth Mm. and the historical context that Macbeth lives in. So in the plot, Shakespeare is commissioned by William Cecil, the Lord Chamberlain, to write a political propaganda piece about the gunpowder plot that also props up King James as a political leader. (laughs) Um, So I actually saw the OSF production, which was very much set in Shakespeare's time. And it was beautiful. And then a year later, L.A.'s Geffen Playhouse, um, in a production directed by I'm going to mess up this last name. (sighs) David S. Bjornsson. I also saw this production. So they produced a version and they set it in America post
2: 9-11
1: to draw comparisons between the terrorism and politics of the gunpowder plot with those of Uh 9-11. Like we can adapt Macbeth, this new play was immediately adaptable depending on who was directing it. And Kevin Wetmore in Ecumenica... Reviewed the L.A. production and called it one of the most thought-filled as opposed to merely thought-provoking dramas since Tony Kushner's Angels in America.
0: Oh, that yeah. is a high compliment.
1: Yeah, there's a lot of political intrigue as the character Shakespeare and the name there is stylized as Shagspeare, because that is Bill Kane, the playwright's personal favorite spelling of shakespeare's (laughs) own name i love that Uh, one too (laughs) yeah it's great uh he starts to ask questions yeah it goes from being very much like conspirators saying when shall we three meet again to oh well i'm also writing this for james and he's requested witches and now we see (laughs) that part Uh done by witches and uh similarly another play that is very loosely based on Macbeth, where reviewers found parallels between the play and the George W. Bush administration, is Dunsinane by David Gregg, which came out in 2010, so just a year after Equivocation. Okay. It is more of a sequel or revision of Shakespeare's play that starts right after the events of Shakespeare's Macbeth. In Dunsinane, one, by naming it after a place instead of a person, it makes it more of a broader political play rather than about an individual. Right. It's about a location and kind of like that
0: that world who's going to rule. Yeah.
1: But also, uh, in this play, Lady M did not die. Oh. And Macbeth is not a tyrannical ruler, but a good king who ruled for 15 years.
0: Which he was more like, historically. More yeah. like, yes.
1: More <laughs> like the historic. So Greg Beat you to uh, it. or Grieg puts more of like the Hollandshed.
0: Interesting. Macbeth
1: into his play. And also relevant to your point about the problematic depiction of women uh-huh. in productions of Macbeth, mm-hmm. in this play, Lady M is called Gruach, which is her historical name, uh-huh. and she is a central focus of the play. She's also very mentally resilient, crafty, mm-hmm. wily. She has a son, Lulach, who, historically, again, the historical Macbeth's stepson. Okay. She claims that he is the rightful king of Scotland, which is what drives most of the play's action. Mm -hmm. And the parallels between this play and the George W. Bush administration are found kind of in how the character of Malcolm speaks and presents ideas and is kind of duplicitous. It also highlights Scotland's otherness by having Scottish characters speak in Scottish Gaelic. Specifically, Gruach, Lady M, really fluidly goes in between the two languages. So the Scots are people who fluently speak more than one language. They are very smart. Mm -hmm. And by also having them have lines in Gaelic, it creates an othering experience for certain audience members. Whereas Mm -hmm. for Shakespeare's audience, the Scots would have been the other. Right. Right. Right that we're trying to normalize. Right. This play specifically other certain audience members because of their inability to understand one of Scotland's official languages. I love that. Yeah. So there's also, you know, there's some linguistic politics in there because yeah. for Scotland, English is a language of colonizers. Yeah. I think for a lot of the world, Yeah. English is a language of colonizers. Yeah, and I know so... specifically,
0: like, a lot of Scottish actors... I don't know that they're Scottish because the first thing I've seen them in is them with a British accent because that's mm-hmm. for actors if you're in the UK that's an accent you have yeah. to master. So it's always like, "Hold on, David Tennant is Scottish?" "Hold on, mm-hmm. Alan Cumming is Scottish?"
1: Yeah. So and so instead this kind of turns that back and it says, "No, actually like this is a play about Scotland. We're going to Make you feel excluded for a second.
0: Because this is Scotland.
1: This is Scotland. And we're in Scotland and we're going to be Scottish. This is an official language. Cool. So yeah, so those are some historical and then pretty recent productions that use the trappings of Macbeth. The ideas that are in Macbeth, even if it's just the idea of a tyrannical ruler who has a wife who helps, you know, goad him on or who use the play Macbeth as inspiration to explore political themes.
0: Cool. That's awesome.
1: Everything from like war to society to specific administrations.
0: Yeah, Uh, that's awesome. And I have another example of a film that I wouldn't call it political. Well, anything can be political, really. But rather than looking at war and looking at gender and looking at political administrations, I have an adaptation that I found that specifically focuses on American class. Mm. That adaptation is called Scotland PA. So I'm going to flip it around a little bit. We're going to now go into a movie. This movie, Scotland PA, it was released in 2001 and it's directed by Billy Morissette. And the summary is Scotland PA is a black comedy retelling Shakespeare's Macbeth, set against the backdrop of a fast food restaurant in the early 70s in rural Pennsylvania. This classic tale of guilt and betrayal centers on the Macbeths, Joe, Mac, quotes Mac, and Pat, who are stuck in their dead end jobs at Duncan's Restaurant. Pat is getting restless and hatches a plan as Mac starts to see things. Three hippies, to be exact. So that's. The basic summary of, of Scotland, PA. Director and screenwriter Billy Morissette said that one of the reasons why he made this film is because, quote, I didn't know who the hell the audience was. It's not smart enough for the really smart people. And it's not really wacky enough for the dumb people. It's Shakespeare for the kid in the back row who is getting stoned reading the cliff notes. And I love that because that also reminded me partially of like why we're making this podcast. Yeah, because... We don't want to give in to bardolatry, and we want Shakespeare and things surrounding Shakespeare to be more approachable. And lo and behold, this movie was made for that purpose. The movie's official site proclaims, "quote These new Shakespeare's reflect both a felt need for social and cultural anchors and a willingness to reexamine or even to challenge the received wisdom as to just what Shakespeare is and means. And in this movie... What that means is taking a good hard look at class and specifically what Billy Morissette did was unlike taking Shakespeare and putting the characters in high places of position like making them like the president or making them some other more contemporary ruler or like person of power centered it around what most Americans recognize as like, you know, being part of the middle class and the Macbeths specifically are lower class. They are living in a trailer park and they work at a fast food chain and they are not living like thanes. They're not lords. They're not anything like that. And so it really tries to recenter this story kind of more like death of a salesman, you know, Mm -hmm. making it middle of the road American story. Why can't we use common everyday people in our Shakespeare adaptations? Um, And one of the things that this, you know, because you're talking about how some of those adaptations looked at Scottish history and making it more Scottish, this movie really likes to turn this into a, a movie that's kitschy, American kitsch, and the movie starts at an abandoned carnival, or fair, with three witches eating a bucket of fried chicken. Fair is foul, and foul is fair, so right off the bat. Oh, this, my God. Yeah. <laughs> and um, this whole adaptation, like it is Shakespeare in its sense of like, it's a, an ambitious couple trying to take over a franchise. But it's it's placing it in something that most everyone understands. We all know diners. We all know fast food restaurants. And I thought it was just fun. It just sounds like a very fun, you know, kind of like, Taking Take a Macbeth. Yeah, yeah. You know, partially taking a piss at Shakespeare, also at, you know, American culture, and then also showing that Shakespeare is relatable and it can be adapted in ways that aren't above, you know, middle and lower class. That story is not above a certain demographic of people based on class.
1: Yeah. I love that, too, because that's like going back to the political theater. That's what like Alfred Jarry and... Eugene Ionesco were largely trying to do with their productions as well as this idea of like theater isn't doesn't have to be for the elite. It can be you know the mundane or the average as well because those are like the parts that actually unite all of us.
0: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Again, <laughs> exactly. And the crazy thing too is Shakespeare during his time was writing for every class of people.
1: Yeah, was also taking these well-known stories and making them something that was able to be approached by groundlings
0: Mm -hmm. to like lords going to elizabeth at her court
1: i love the idea that keeps returning in these good productions right and these good adaptations not to put morals on them but these well done (laughs) yeah thought out is the idea of something that keeps returning is like shakespeare doesn't have to be highbrow theater doesn't have to be highbrow if it's truly universal then it belongs to everyone and Mm -hmm. i did not want to talk about adaptations of Macbeth without talking about a very significant adaptation that was done in 1936 in Harlem as part of the Federal Theater Project. So the Federal Theater Project was part of the New Works Administration, part of FDR's New Deal that got Americans back to work after the Great Depression. Side note, uh, we should probably have another Federal Theater Project because Mm -hmm. the amount of work like classic American plays that came out of that is incredible. It got playwrights writing. Casts were huge. The amount of work they were able to do because they had the
0: resources funding. Yeah.
1: Funding and resources behind them was amazing. So part of the Federal Theater Project was also the Negro Theater Unit, which specifically focused on getting Black theater artists back to work. The unit was split into a contemporary unit that did modern plays and a classical unit, which produced classical works. At the time of this production of Macbeth, was produced. This theater unit had done two modern plays, and they are like, well, it's time to do a classic. <laughs> uh-huh. And they got a young 20-year-old director by the name of Orson Welles, hmm. who had never professionally directed a play until then uh, as the director. Orson Welles' concept, which he credited to his wife, Virginia Nicholson, was to set Macbeth in Haiti during the reign of Henry Christophe, who was a former slave who styled himself as King Henry I in the 19th century. Hmm. It eventually morphed into a fictional Caribbean island, and they used Haitian voodoo as a basis for the witchcraft in this production instead of Scottish witches. They are voodoo priestesses. And because of that, this production is most commonly known as Voodoo Macbeth.
0: See, that sounds like a thought-out substitution compared to our schoolgirl witches.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. (laughs) Uh, And... At first, uh, Harlem communists picketed outside the theater. So this was being produced in Harlem. There were these protests because community members assumed that this production, which was led by a white director of an all-black, 110-person cast, was going to be setting up the black cast for failure and for white people to laugh at them trying to do this white man's play of Shakespeare, right? Mm -hmm. But in fact, the opposite happened It was a box office sensation. It sold out the entire 67-show run in Harlem. It cemented Wells' reputation as a director. It was lauded for the innovative adaptation, and it promoted Black American theater to the national stage. After that 67-show run in Harlem, it got an extended run in New York and then toured the country, where it also had to overcome the added challenge of a cast of 110 Black Americans traveling through segregated cities in the 1930s mm-hmm. there are a lot of pictures that exist from this production and there's even a clip from a newsreel called we work again that shows the final three to four minutes of the play basically from macbeth saying arm arm and out to Macduff killing him and in this version the witches and hecate are alongside backing Macduff up and staring into Macbeth as Macbeth is saying like, "Be these fiends no more believed," and is dying. So it's very much like they're in control, and right,
0: which goes into the fate stuff.
1: Enjoying what happens, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. And Hecate ends the play with peace. The charms wound up, so thus making all the action of the play very much
0: concluded,
1: concluded, and happening because of the witch's interference. That the yeah. witches controlled all this. It is done now. The tyrant is dead, and it's over.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: If you have four minutes, it's available on the National Film Preservation Foundation. The acting is very stylized, as (laughs) acting was in the 1930s. Mm -hmm. Um, So it does feel like just a completely different style of acting. It can feel very unreal. I'm using air quotes. Mm -hmm. But that is more due to the The time time period than I think the talent of the actors. There's some excellent stuff in there. And I also do want to say that Despite the success and the popularity of this play, there was still a lot of racism in their reviews from specifically white newspapers had a lot of things to say about whether or not these black actors were good at speaking Shakespeare, <laughs> which is super racist. Yeah. Because I'm like, I'm watching it. They are fine. <laughs> uh-huh. Like, it is 1930s. But then um, the... Black newspapers found this production to be very worthwhile and having a lot to say. So yeah, white reviewers had problems with Wells's alterations of Shakespeare or said that the black voices lacked poetry. Again, pure racism.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But the black reviewers saw something more. They saw black actors in a play that was neither stereotypical folklore nor you know a musical. They got to play a universal character. And I think when we talk about, like, why why do, like, people who aren't white men want to do this play or want to do these plays, which were originally written for white men, right? Right. Um, instead of original. And I think it's that idea of this has been put up on this pedestal of universality, something that is the epitome of the English language art. Mm-hmm. And so to be able to take on those roles and be told that we as women or other marginalized voices are worthy of taking on these roles that were never meant for us can be very powerful.
0: Right. Because prior to this, or even still now, I've heard Black or non-white actors discussing like, I don't want to just be seen for Caliban or Othello.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Exactly.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. So this would have been one of the first big major productions in American theater of,
1: I would say black American theater existed alongside in parallel to white American theater.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: However, it did not have the money, attention, cadre, etc. that white American theater had because of white privilege, because of systemic racism. Mm-hmm. So this is a moment where because the Federal Theater Project, one, identified and funded specifically a need for black artists to also be paid for their work it was pulled up into the national consciousness it's not like the first
0: ever but it's the first ever. receiving attention that's and giving of and given the
1: resources mhm right so yeah i did not want us to go without highlighting that very important piece of theater history in the history of macbeth and i know that you also have a production that yes. Is more recent and has also kind of brought Macbeth back in a... uh, Because the production that you're going to talk about, it's kind of long running now. Yes. But when it premiered, I mean, I saw Gossip Girl went to this production. (laughs) Like, there's an episode where the characters...
0: Broad City has an episode where Abby and Alana go to this event.
1: It's now like a very like New York quintessential thing. And it's based on Macbeth.
0: It is. And that show is called Sleep No More. It is based on Shakespeare's Macbeth. It um, was directed by Felix Baird and Maxine Doyle. And it is a punch-dunk production presented by Immersive at the McKittrick Hotel in New York City. And it opened in New York in August of 2011. And unlike all the other adaptations that we've been discussing, Sleep No More is a dance theater adaptation and it's staged environmentally in a warehouse that's redesigned to resemble a derelict hotel. It's a style of theater that's um, really gained a lot of popularity, and that is immersive theater. One might simply describe this as a Macbeth haunted house, but I have been to this event, and it is so much more than that. Yeah, it's a dance, immersive, theatrical experience, which is a lot to walk into when you've never gone to anything like that. And I'm just going to kind of walk listeners through what the experience is like. I'm not going to give away too much, but also my experience would be very different from any of your experiences. That's just the nature of this immersive theater experience. So you arrive at the McKittrick, which is uh, on the west side of Manhattan, and it's very 1930s. You go to the bar and it's got like a bluesy singer and you can get a drink and then your group will be called. Once your group is called, you are to wear a white Venetian mask. Audience members wear these masks at all times, so as to distinguish yourself from the performers. You're taken in small groups into a multi-story performance space and released to wander in what might think of as a spooky installation art piece. Audience members get the chance to explore a lot of the details of this multi-story experience, My sister and I went together and we both had very different experiences because we were let off on different floors. So my sister's little card got named. The bellhop was like, you know, queen of hearts. And my sister had, you know, queen of hearts or whatever the card was. And so then I was like, oh, it's my time. So I go to head out out of the um, elevator with her. And the guy's like, no, not now. You're you're still in the elevator. And I was like, okay. So my sister was let off onto a floor without me and I kept going up the elevator, and I got released on my own, and I walked out into a cemetery. So yeah, you you end up wandering by yourself or with other audience members that you don't know, and you're supposed to just kind of walk around, wander, and at some point, you'll eventually run into some performers. And each character performs different actions based on part of the story. So on different floors in different rooms, you have dance performers who are interpreting or reenacting different parts of Macbeth through dance and movement. And you as an audience member with your Venetian mask on are watching in the same room and the actors could come up right next to you. They could be on the opposite side of the room. At some point, they might interact with you. Like if you're in one of the rooms with the witches, they might engage with you a little bit. Then once that scene is completed, the actors will leave their room to go to another room, wherever their next destination is. And you as an audience member get to decide if you're gonna follow Lady Macbeth, if you're gonna follow Macbeth, and you have your experience that's very different from anyone else because you're choosing which which plot line you're
1: gonna go follow. And like there's a bunch of stuff happening simultaneously. Yeah. So. That's
0: another thing. It's all simultaneous. So the store the show starts at the same time on different floors in different rooms. Actors playing Macbeth, Lady Macbeth, the witches, Duncan, any of the Macbeth characters. And there are also some extra characters as well. They're all performing at the same time. And so while you're, if you're in a room with Lady Macbeth, you're missing what's happening with the witches at that point. So Mm -hmm. it's very much kind of a choose your own adventure. And yeah, I don't want to go too much into it, but it is an incredibly creative way to interpret this story. because. It does follow the plot line. I was in the same room with Lady Macbeth and Macbeth in their famous scene. It's their iconic bedroom scene and they dance around in and around a claw footed tub with bloody water and they dance on the bed. And if you know Macbeth, you have an idea of what's going on. But even if you don't know Macbeth, the dancing, the visuals, the music are so captivating. And then you get to choose. You get to choose what it is that you want to do. Like You get to choose who you want to be surrounded by and if you go see the show again, you get to choose a different path if you would like to. So like yeah. my sister and I came out of the show with a very different experience because we followed different performers and it all comes together during the banquet scenes. I don't want to give too much away, but it comes together in the banquet scene yeah. and then the end of the show has a repeat of the banquet scene. And I really don't want to spoil anything because with the pandemic, the show is not closed permanently. It's just temporarily closed, so there's still time for people to go see the show, so I don't want to, yeah.
1: If anyone's curious about seeing a little bit of the experience, I haven't been to it, but I think the Gossip Girl episode does give a good, like, they kind of maybe do a little bit more than what actual audience members are able uh-huh. to do, uh. but they do go through Arriving at the bar, getting put into different groups, putting on the masks. You do see some performers performing. Mm -hmm. um, And that's in Season 5, Episode 7. It's called The Big Sleep No More.
0: Uh Uh-huh.
1: So if you want to get an idea, if this Mm -hmm. piqued your curiosity, Curiosity. you can see a small amount of it in Gossip Girl. Yes.
0: (laughs) Yeah, you can. And another cool thing about this adaptation is that it is nonverbal. It is a dance piece. So you're walking in and everyone expects Macbeth to be the language, the beauty of the language, the words. This is Macbeth with no language. This is all body. This is how the performers have translated the text and the story in their body and in relation to each other. Mm -hmm. I was reading a review by one of my former professors, actually, DJ Hopkins at San Diego State. He wrote about a review on, on his experience with Sleep No More and He noted that, you know, the only words that he heard in this wordless Shakespeare, um, Lady M does mumble out damn spot a bunch. But other than that, you really don't have language. Yeah. So hopefully when the pandemic is over, if you are intrigued by this theater experience, you can go to New York and check out Sleep No More. Yeah.
1: That's a great, like. If, again, like talking about like the extremes of adaptation of Macbeth. This episode could be so long <laughs> if yeah. we kept talking about <laughs> adaptations of Macbeth. So just to kind of wrap things up in a bit of a boat, I did want to kind of go through a quick list of a few more notable adaptations or derivative works that are based on Shakespeare's Macbeth or have ties to it. Mm-hmm. I'm going to start off with some international ones because this play has gone beyond influencing just Western art. One of the most well-known adaptations, which we did not have time to talk about today, is a film called Throne of Blood, which is directed by the acclaimed Japanese director Akira Kurosawa called Throne of Blood, which sets the action of Macbeth in samurai-era Japan. Then there's also Mickey B, which is an Irish film set in an Irish men's prison, which used actual prisoners as actors in this film. Ah. It explores like the kind of politics and social hierarchies in a men's prison, uh, the play of Macbeth. Then there is Maki Befo, which is a Malagasy production that is largely improvised and set in a fishing village in Madagascar. Hmm. It was a pretty acclaimed uh, film when it came out. Uh, and then there's a Bollywood version called Makbul, uh, which is set in the, the criminal underworld of Mumbai. Back in kind of American and English productions, we have a film called The Real Thing at Last, which was a parody of the American entertainment industry by J.M. Barry, who also wrote Peter Pan. No copies exist anymore, but it was made in like response to an announcement of another major film production of Macbeth. Jan Barry basically said, "Well, we don't write new stories anymore."
2: (laughs) (laughs) I mean,
0: Um, look at Broadway today.
1: uh, Then there is also two films. One is called Joe Macbeth, and the other is Men of Respect that are made in separate decades, but both set the plot in crime families, the mob, gangsters. And then the UK and US television shows House of Cards are loosely based on Macbeth, also blended up with Richard III.
0: Yeah, that makes sense.
1: And then The Last King of Scotland uh, is a fictional story about Ugandan dictator Idi Amin based on events that occurred during his reign, but it is loosely also based on the story of Macbeth. And Forrest Whitaker won the Academy Award for this movie nice again like the influence is just far wide ever expanding this plays everywhere it is
0: and if you're looking for something that's not a adaptation and you're looking for like i just want to watch macbeth i have heard that the best version to watch is the 1979 rsc version with sir ian mckellen and dame judy dench
1: i have seen that one and it is Excellent. If you want something that's very true to what Shakespeare wrote, it is medieval Scotland and it's very well acted. So if you're looking to watch a filmed adaptation, I would definitely also recommend that yeah, one. Yeah,
0: maybe start there and then start to explore so that you have something that's very true to yeah. the text and the and the story itself.
1: Agreed. Yeah, absolutely excellent. Awesome. That's it for our wrap up of Macbeth. Yeah. It is so wild that we are here
0: again. Mm -hmm. And if you do watch any of these versions or you find more versions and you want to tell us about it, you can reach out to us at our Instagram or our email and let us know. Neither Elise nor myself have the time to watch all the things. So we would love to hear what you're nerding out on.
1: Oh, yeah. And uh, join us next time when we will start talking about a whole new play. Yeah, a whole new play.
0: Goodbye, Macbeth. For now. <laughs> I'm Courtney
1: Smith. And I'm Elise Sharp. This is Shakespeare Anyone. Thank you so much for listening to Shakespeare Anyone. Works referenced in this episode are available in the episode description. Our theme music is Never Ending Minute by Sounds Like Sander. If you would like to support us, it would help us out if you would hit the subscribe button, like us, leave a comment, write a review, share us on social media, tell a friend about us. All the things. We'd appreciate it. You can also support the podcast at patreon.com slash shakespeareanyone. Patreon patrons get access to exclusive bonus content throughout the year. The link is also in the episode description. For
0: more, you can visit our website shakespeareanyone.com, follow us on Instagram at shakespeareanyonepod, or Twitter at shakespeareanyone. For Twitter, that's shakespeareany and the number one. Every other platform is spelled out like the name of the podcast.
1: Now, because you listened all the way to the end of the credits, here's a completely random Shakespeare quote for you.
0: From Henry VIII, Act II, Scene Two,
2: spoken by Norfolk. Pray God he be not angry.